Welcome to the RBT mini-series presented by the BT Focus podcast. As we walk you step-by-step with the second edition RBT task list on your path to certification and elevating your practice. Hello and welcome back to another RBT mini-series edition of the BT Focus podcast. I'm joined again by Dan Jones. Dan, thanks for joining us. Of course, Brian. I'm glad to be here again. Well, we're glad to have you back. I'm excited for our conversation today. We are going to pick up right where we left off on the RBT task list, second edition. And Dan, we're going to be concluding section A on measurement today. Pretty exciting stuff. It is. I love this section. Something that's really important in uh, your average daily life. As a very, very, very applicable, right? Measurement is a huge part of the role of an RBT. And what we're going to be talking about today is A6, describing behavior and environment in observable and measurable terms, observable and measurable. So let's talk about at the, the most foundational level, Dan, what is behavior? How would you define behavior? Uh, One way of saying it's pretty simple. It's what we do and the importance of it being observable because humans were pretty complex, right? There's a lot of ways that we interact with our environment. Some things that we can see in terms of our more overt behavior, the things that we do that have an immediate effect on the environment. But also in behavior analysis, we recognize the existence of what we would call covert behavior or things that we can't see. So thoughts, feelings, emotions, like those are very real things. However, they're much harder to access. So we spend the majority of our time looking at behavior that are observable and measurable, and we'll go into those reasons in just a moment. All right. So behavior, Dan, that's what we do. And this always, this section always reminds me of the Pixar movie Inside Out. Have you seen that? Oh, classic. Yes. It's great. Completely. It's amazing. It's creatively written. There's so much going on inside of us. And the producers of the movie do a good job of actually creating a scenario where we can measure and observe um, what's going on inside the individual, like the the main antagonist in that situation. And I love it because we do have a lot going on inside of us, but until it comes out, we can't refer to it as behavior. Yeah. So yeah. I love this. Yeah. Section. So good. Maybe a movie recommendation after you finish the podcast. That's a great one. So we're talking about behavior. We are focusing on observable and measurable behavior. And so that's A. What's the environment, Dan? Well, the environment is what's around us. It's anything that we can perceive through our senses. So through sight, sound, taste, etc. And it's something that we have an impact on. So our behavior impacts the environment and in turn, our environment influences our behavior. And why is it important that we describe behavior in observable and measurable terms? Well, here's number one. When behavior is clearly defined, data collection is easier and more accurate, right? So if we focus on things that we can see and measure and observe, we have a much better ability to influence it. So for example, if I were to say Brian was angry today, that's not very helpful. We recognize that emotion of anger exists, but what does that look like? Dan, if you're in a bad mood, what does that look like in terms of your behavior? It's going to be completely different than, say, my neighbor's angry mood. But specifically for me, I internalize a lot. So if I'm angry, I shut down. I don't communicate very well. I don't talk a lot in general. 
So if we were to be even more descriptive, I would say that if I'm angry, I will shut down for less than 30 minutes. Um, usually it'll take about 10 to 20 minutes before I start thinking about why I'm angry, what I did wrong, and how I can fix it before I can move on from it. So it's, it is important that we look at the behavior that we're seeing in the environment in an observable and measurable way. And if you don't mind, I'll give one of my experiences that I had when I had first started as a behavior technician. And that was, I, I, everyone looks at the IPOS when they're going through that first day with the client. And the IPOS is the individualized plan of support. And on that individualized plan of support, the supervising clinician had outlined that there was a maladaptive behavior of crying and whining, crying slash whining. I remember that specifically. And so that did not register with me. But whenever I tell technicians in my training this story that I'm about to tell you, it, it always has a bigger reaction than if I were to just tell them, I worked with a client that was crying slash whining. Instead, I tell them a story that when, on my first day, I got in there, I sat down with the client, and the client cried for 45 minutes. And I did not know what to do. Of course, the supervising clinician was there to support me. And she helped me through the process. That crying behavior happened every single day for five weeks. And it was because there was this aversion to work. So seeing the IPOS as crying, whining behavior, it was descriptive. It, was, it wasn't very observable and measurable. But when I specifically saw it in action, I was like, okay, now I can observe, now I can measure this. This is a lot. It was 45 minutes. The quality of life for the client is really low and the family. So we need to work on this. So it's important to, to speak about behavior in observable and measurable terms so that other people can know what's going on if I'm angry. Or I'm not angry. Can't yeah. really use that. Yeah, Danny, you touch on so many great things there. Like one, with respect to the example you had with your client, with the use of the words crying or whining, there can be consensus of the group when that behavior occurs. So it's not ambiguous. It helps with data collection because, hey, maybe we're recording the duration of this crying behavior. How many minutes did it last? And so you said this behavior lasted for five weeks. Well, hopefully over time is what you saw is a trend of that behavior start to decrease over time. So maybe you started off at the beginning, it was a 50-minute interval where there was that crying behavior. And hopefully after a number of weeks, that behavior and that duration started to diminish. You also brought up a really great point, too, of the importance of using observable and measurable because... When it's subjective, if I were to say, hey, Dan was angry, I think you and I are very alike. If I'm upset about something, I'm, I'm maybe a little more withdrawn, more quiet. But for somebody, if they're angry, maybe they're throwing chairs. So so, so the use of that term angry is subjective. I, I might have a hard time. If I was measuring your behavior, I might not know that you're angry. I just might think, oh, Dan's just in a quiet mood or Brian's in a quiet mood. Um, it's not very helpful. So the importance of this particular taskless item, it rang a, a seven dimension bell in my mind, or the, you know, the seven dimensions of ABA, which we'll go into more depth in a future episode. We have one of our seven dimensions or core themes in behavior analysis that we are technological. And what that means is that our precise written descriptions of a behavior is sufficient for somebody else to carry on that intervention or to make that, that change. So I think about this a lot now as a supervisor and how am I writing my programs? How am I writing them in such a way in observable and measurable terms that the, the BTs on our team can then go and implement that intervention or another clinician could support if needed for that intervention? So I think you touched on some really great themes for this task item, Dan. Of course. 
And I agree with you when it comes to the technological aspect as well. And always ask if you are, are working with a program and a supervising clinician and the program that you're looking at, it just doesn't make sense to you. Always ask your supervising clinician, ask them about details about how they can explain it or how they want it run. And also one of the beautiful things about the dialogue between care team members is that you can also contribute to it. And some of my most favorite things is that I would talk to my supervising clinician and I would say, hey, I see this program in here. Say it's specifically um, looking at attending. So I would look at that program and that supervising clinician might have it written in a certain way. And I would say, okay, I see we're focusing on attending. Would it be okay if I did it this way and I ran the program this way? Because it still works on attending. And the supervising clinician would be like, yeah, or they'd be like, no, this is how I want it. Or yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. Yes, you can do that. So that's what I really like about the care team as well when it comes to the technological aspect of this. Because when you are writing something, it, it is measurable and observable, but still, like we try to make it as objective as possible. But sometimes you can contribute as well. Yeah, perfect. And and what you're describing there, Dan, reminds me of the use of the term an operational definition, defining what are the parameters that would specify a certain behavior. And I like the point you made about this, the importance of that dialogue and the treatment team, because as a clinician, we're going to try our very best to think about all of the possible scenarios that might relate to this behavior. What are some examples? What are some non-examples? But then you might say, well, what about this scenario that I as a supervisor did not think about? Or what about this application? So, so those definitions can get more and more refined as time goes along. So that importance of that dialogue, I think is very critical. So well said, Dan. So we talked about one of the advantages of writing um, goals and describing behavior in observable and measurable terms is it makes data collection more easy and accurate to occur because there can be consensus about what that behavior looks like. Next, another advantage is that when behavior and environment are clearly defined, we can focus on the interaction between the two instead of some inner cause or opinion. Okay. So the, the power of behavior analysis is that we know the effect of the environment on somebody's behavior. So I think it's a beautiful, really a, a worldview in some respect, because it takes a lot of the blame, quote unquote, out of some sort of inner dimension of somebody of, oh, that person is just really lazy. They don't, they're not very smart. They don't know how to do that. And instead I can look at, well, what are the factors that are influencing the way that they're behaving? Because we can change the, the environment. We can put in supports that make them more um, successful. Uh, and it takes the, the blame out of, well, that's just, it's a really bad parent. They just don't know what they're doing. It's, well, let's look at all of the competing things in the environment that are influencing their behavior and start there because the behavior will follow. It also points to something that we really look to dispel within behavior analysis and this notion of what we would call circular reasoning. So I'll give you an example of circular reasoning. Brian yells sometimes because he's just not very patient. Okay. But if you were to take that the full 360, Brian yells because he's not very patient and he's not very patient because he yells all the time. That's circular reasoning. That doesn't get anywhere. But what we could say is that, hey, there are times when certain things influence Brian's behavior. And as a result, it might influence how responsive he is or is not at a given moment. So uh, again, we're focusing on the environment because we can change the environment. We can't change some inner dimension that's not accessible to someone. What are your thoughts on that, Dan? Completely agree. 
And it recalls a quote from Einstein. I'm going to paraphrase this, but it goes along the lines of, we cannot use the same thinking to come up with a solution as we used when the problem started. So essentially, we have to think a different way. And if you're circular reasoning, you're thinking the same way. And if you're casting blame as well, you're not solution oriented. You're still focusing again on the past, the thing that has already happened. And I keep, I had mentioned this in previous podcasts as well, but present thinking, past thinking, and future thinking is really important. It's important that we spend time in each of them, but it's important that we aren't spending too much time in one of them. And specifically for solution-oriented individuals, most of the time they're thinking in the present and the future because they're looking at what's happening in that moment and how they can change in the future, how they can make it better. And sometimes people do get stuck in this trap. And sometimes people don't identify that their environment is actually keeping them in one spot where they can't move forward. And personally for me, one of the things that I know that I'm stuck with right now that's not the best habit is drinking Red Bulls. And I use this example a lot. I know it's the worst, but I'm stuck on a cycle there. And I'll presently think about it and be like, oh yeah, Red Bull is really nice. Why? Because maybe I'm tired or maybe I want to have a little bit more energy to go do something. And so I'll be like, yeah, that'll affect my future. And then I get that crash and I'm like, man, that was a bad decision. And then I'll go right back to it. So like for me, I found myself, okay, look, I need to break this down and I need to create, I need to create a way that I can interrupt that behavior. And so I would started replacement behaviors. I started replacing it with coffee from Starbucks. And then I, my wallet was like, oh, Dan, man, that's really expensive. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's cool. Now I'll start making my own drinks at home that are a little bit more healthy. So I went out and I bought frozen fruit and I have honey and I'd make it myself. And then I'd make sure that was readily available. So I did drink the Red Bull. But What's beautiful about that situation, not drinking the Red Bull, but what's beautiful about that is that I was able to identify what was happening in my environment and I was able to change it so it was more successful. And when it comes to our clients, we are focusing a lot on changing positively some behaviors, positively the environment, positively what's going on in their life so that we improve the quality of their life. We're looking to support them so that they and the individuals around them have a higher quality of life. And so when we step in there and we make these small changes or we remove something or we add something, regardless if it's positive or negative reinforcement or positive and negative punishment, we're doing so so that we assist and help our client be a better them. I know that was like a long yeah. way around agreeing with yeah. you, Brian. But and I, I, I'll, we can, I'll definitely be one to share my caffeine consumption. I, I think I need to get on some sort of like changing criterion design. <laughs> like you just described, like, all right, I'm going to go from... 500 milligrams a day to maybe not like that third or fourth cup of coffee at like three o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon, but gradual changes. And what I like about that is you're focusing on the environment, right? So what can I do differently? I'm not going to blame myself. I'm a failure because I had more coffee today. It's well, what can I change that around me so that I'm less likely to, you know, and engage in that, that consumption behavior, if you will. So nice, Dan. Awesome. One more thing that I want to add. Another advantage of this is that if we're focusing on the interaction between the environment and the behavior, it'll also allow that BCBA, that supervising clinician, to create an intervention plan for those maladaptive behaviors and train all of the appropriate parties appropriately in how to respond to them. So how do we inter how do we respond if we saw this behavior of crying or this behavior of whining or property destruction or whatever that might be? How can we make changes in that environment? So 
to transition into our next point, I want to talk a little bit how we can describe behavior and environment in observable and measurable terms. One, I mean, in, in the most basic sense, stating what are the specific things that you saw or heard. I remember starting off as a behavior technician and writing some of my first ABC data, antecedent behavior consequence. What did the behavior look like? What happened before? what happened after. And I think I might've been a little bit of a perfectionist in the beginning of, I, I don't want to do this wrong. What do I know? How, how, what do I put in this? And one of my supervisors just made it very simple. Brian, what did you see? Describe it. What did the behavior look like? What happened before? And what can you see in the environment? And making it that simple and, and foundational, I'm not making any sort of hypothesis of what might be going on internally in the client at the time. And I'm not going to really delve into what was the motivation in the moment. What did you see? Because that provides us with great and rich data where we can make some hypotheses later on and look for some of those functional relationships between the behavior and the environment. So for new behavior technicians out there, when you're writing that ABC data, make it simple on yourself. What did you see? And from there, everything else will follow. So that's the first thing. Next thing is, and this ties back to one of our first podcasts on the RPT series, include what dimension of the behavior are we evaluating? All right, so Dan, I'm gonna I'm gonna quiz you a little bit. All right, so one one dimension, frequency. What are we talking about? So we're looking at a specific number of times that a behavior, regardless of what behavior you're measuring, is happening in a certain moment or period of time. Time is really important in the situation, though, and also make, making sure that you're you're counting specifically how many times it's happening in that moment. And frequency data is probably for me one of the dimensions that I took the most. Uh, and it will all be in your BIP and it'll tell you specifically how it needs to be measured by your supervising clinician. But yeah, it's really important. You nail it. Frequency, the count, the number of times. Uh, five, there was five instances of hitting behavior today. There was 20 instances of swiping material. And as you perfectly described, Dan, it's going to be outlined in your behavior intervention plan. So there's not going to be any gray area with respect to how do I record this, but I always think it's so helpful whenever you can to quantify a behavior in whatever dimension it was. It's It gives me a much clearer picture to say, instead of saying there was a tantrum today, all right, that's not super helpful. Instead, if you were to say there was crying behavior that lasts for 20 minutes, Okay, that's a much clearer picture for me. So frequency, the number of times, rate, closely tied to frequency, right? It's the number of times divided by whatever the time interval is. So there was 10 instances of crying behavior an hour, or there was five sign languages, five, five signs that were emitted every hour. Getting that time dimension, as you stated, Dan, is important as well. What about duration? What are we referring to here, Dan? So duration is whatever behavior you're looking at. And I, I do want to focus on this as well, because a lot of the time when you get in the field and you start working with behavior and you start taking this ABC data, you focus a lot on challenging behavior. Now, in general, we're just going to refer to a duration as the behavior, specifically how long it was. And when it comes to challenging behavior, say, for example, client left his seat for five minutes during a two hour DTT trial. So the supervising clinician has an idea of how long the client was out of their seat. Now you can even give more information than that, that they don't know within those two hours when the client 
got out of their seat. And you can even say during the first 10 minutes, the client was out of their seat for five minutes. The client was redirected back to their seat. The client came back and sat down for the last five minutes of this 10 minute DTT trial. So duration is essentially the behavior, how long it was in that moment. Yep, absolutely. How long it occurred. And I, I like how you also added some important context to that as well. Of We'll talk about ABC data in just a second here, but having, I always say to new staff too, like when in doubt, like if, should I include this aspect in it with respect to what was occurring in the environment? I would say, yeah, the more information, the better in most respect of who is present, when did it happen? Where were you? What was occurring? Because all of those things provide really rich context to the specific behavior. To run through a couple more, latency, which we referred to, the amount of time between the signal and what we called an SD and the onset of behavior, right? You're sitting at a green red, at a red light, turns to green, it takes you two seconds for you to hit the gas pedal. Well, your latency for pressing that gas pedal was two seconds. Um, and then finally, magnitude, the force of a behavior uh, or the intensity of a behavior. So maybe one that we don't refer to as much, but it is a dimension to, to note. Now let's talk a little bit about ABC data. And I think we're going to go into this in maybe greater detail in future episodes as well. It's something that just comes like becomes common vernacular in ABA. We talk about ABC all the time. And what are we referring to here? It's well, the antecedent, what occurred right before the onset of a behavior behavior or the response, what happened, what was the the behavior that the client engaged in that we're going to be very observable and measurable for, and then what was the consequence, what occurred right after the behavior. And it's a really great way, it's a very informative way for behavior technicians, for RBT to describe and encapsulate what occurred in a session because if we have a if we're able to accurately measure a behavior we can evaluate its effect over time and the influence of our treatment so so dan i'm going to provide you with a scenario here of a great way of a, of a really positive example of using observable and measurable terms all right so here's a scenario and and maybe this is in a session note you're providing a narrative description. This also is really relevant as we shared with ABC data collection, but here's a really positive example of using observable and measurable terms. During today's session, the client began engaging in maladaptive behavior during the last 20 minutes of the session. When writing your notes, instead of recording the client did not work during the last 20 minutes because he was bored or distractive, instead you could write the client eloped from the workstation during their receptive ID program five times and attempted to play with items in the therapy room, blocks, token boards, stuffed animals, from 2 to 2 10 p.m. Technician prompted the client back to the table during each instance and represented the SD with an immediate prompt. Wow, that's a very different description as opposed to he was bored or she was bored or not motivated. It painted the picture beautifully of what was transpiring in the session. Anything you want to add to that, Dan? And what's important here to focus on is that these notes that you're writing, both your supervising clinician and our payers can see this. So the insurance companies can see this. It's important to make sure that you are referring to yourself as technician and the client as client. Or you can also use the client's first two initials of their first name and first two initials of their last name. And if you're a supervising clinician looking at these notes, you're going to absolutely love this behavior technician because you're going to see, wow, this is measurable. This is observable. I can now take this and create a behavior intervention plan. And this is important. And most of these are consecutive steps. And the reason why we want to find this behavior intervention plan is so that we can identify the function or functions of the behavior. So what's really motivating this? And 
for me, and this is something that I had already talked about earlier for those Red Bulls, if someone, if a supervising clinician came into my life and they started identifying specifically when I was drinking Red Bulls, how much Red Bull I was drinking, and kind of the antecedent, the behavior, and the consequence after that, then they would be able to come up with a behavior intervention plan, which I did for myself. A lot of people can do this for their own behaviors if you're struggling with something. And I like to apply this to a real world scenario as well, because it's something that we're always trying to improve. And so I love this information because it's it's measurable, it's observable, it's something that your supervising clinician will fall in love with if they see this in, in, in your notes. And they'll be like, great job to the behavior technician. <laughs> yeah, that was an all-star description that this technician provided here. So very well done. All right, Dan, so let's do a quick speed round. I've got three test questions for you, all right? You ready for them? I got it. All right, number one. Dan, why is it important to describe behavior and environment in observable and measurable terms? Is it A, because describing behavior and environment in observable and measurable terms makes data collection easier and more accurate? Is it B, describing behavior and environment in observable and measurable terms allows us to focus on the interaction between the two? Is it C, describes behavior and environment in observable and measurable terms allows for the BCBA to create an intervention plan to address the behaviors appropriately? Or D, all of the above. That would be D, all of the above. Data collection is easier and more accurate. It allows the focus to remain on the interaction between the two, and it allows the BCBA to create a behavior intervention plan to address the behavior appropriately. Ding, ding, ding. Dan, you nailed it. One for one. Way to go. All right. Next question. All right. Select the option that provides a description of the behavior in observable and measurable terms. Is it A, the client had a bad attitude today when asked to complete their math assignment? Is it B, the client appeared to have a lot of anxiety today when prompted to engage in peer play? Is it C, the client engaged in three instances of crying behavior during today's session? The first instance occurred when prompted to enter the therapy room for two minutes and 15 seconds. The second instance occurred during the imitation of gross motor program for four minutes and 50 seconds. And the third instance occurred during circle time for two minutes and 30 seconds. Or is it D, the client refused to do multiple tasks today because they were feeling unmotivated? That would be C. Yep, exactly. And that one's almost jumping right off the page. Really great use of quantifying the behavior, describing the environmental context, and describing the behavior in observable and measurable terms. The option with anxiety, we're not saying that anxiety does not exist, is not a real thing. There's just a lot of co-occurring behaviors with anxiety, some of which we can see, some of which we can't see. So we need to describe that in maybe some more observable and measurable terms for that to be more of a correct statement. So very good. All right, two for two, Dan, one more for you. All right, last question. Which of the following should not be included in a behavioral definition? A, the client's emotional state or reason for engaging in behavior. B, the exact action observed. D, the dimension of the behavior being evaluated, like frequency or duration. Or E, the environmental conditions before or after the behavior. So the client's emotional state should not be added into the behavioral definition. You nailed it. You got it. Well, Dan, three for three, excellent job. You've got a perfect batting average. So I, I look forward to challenging you again next time to see if you can keep that streak alive and excellent observations and experiences for this task item. I'm ready. Thank, 
thank you for the opportunity and thank you for having me again. Thank you, Dan. You later. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this special RBT mini-series edition of the BT Focus podcast. We look forward to joining you next time as we continue journeying through the second edition RBT task list to help you elevate your practice and learn more about the science of applied behavior analysis.